0: Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm supposed to be on vacation, but family um, matters intruded, uh, as life sometimes does. I want to thank Chris Starwalt for subbing in for me. More about that in a little bit i um, very excited. We had, this, we had this episode on the calendar for quite a while, and I didn't want to scrub it just because of drama, in part because uh, he's a very impressive uh, scholar. He's also going to be uh, shortly, if more or less, full-time colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, and that will give me the opportunity to murder him because he went to Dalton, which is the high school that was known as the Hive of Scum and Villainy um, in uh, New York City, where we both grew up. I'm, of course, referring to uh, former, former, former Princeton professor? Very uh, former, very former. Yes. I didn't know if that was the correct lingo. Uh, Joshua Katz. I'm sure you can Joshua find Katz. worse adjectives, but that will do. <laughs> so Joshua Katz is a, is a classicist. He's a linguist. He wrote, I, I defecate you negatory. He wrote his PhD dissertation on topics in Indo-European personal pronouns. Um, which I gather from context is a different conversation
1: than the conversation about pronouns today. Uh, very much so. Although I should say that uh, I have begun thinking about writing some public pieces on pronouns today too, based in part on the very different sort of work that I did all those years ago. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome to the Remnant. Welcome to AI. Thank you for doing this. So, uh, where where to begin? I actually like you've been writing a lot. You were sort of victim of cancel culture and you've been writing a lot about free speech and all of these sorts of issues. It's one of the reasons why you were a former Princeton professor, but I'm kind of more, I talk to a lot of people about cancel culture and I'm happy to do it again. It's an important thing. And free speech is an important thing. I got David French on the payroll because I think free speech is an important thing, but um, I'm actually sort of interested in the classic stuff a little bit. So what was your specialty? Let's just sort of do some table setting here.
1: What was your specialty? What, what, was your, what were your passions? Very good. So uh, what were, and I hope still are my passions, are dead languages generally. So I'm an unusual classicist, or I was an unusual classicist, because I have no degrees in the subject. All of my degrees are in linguistics, and while I was and am widely interested in all sorts of linguistic research, in particular, I have always appreciated dead languages and the literatures and cultures associated with those dead languages and dead people. So um, shortly before finishing that PhD on Indo-European personal pronouns, I had the tremendous good fortune to land a job at Princeton in the Department of Classics. Um, I was hired in the first place to teach the history of English, of all things, because even then the Princeton English Department didn't think that teaching the history of English was a worthwhile pursuit. Uh, So this was uh, something that had ended up in the classics department. And for unusual reasons, I was hired in the first place to teach that. But then I stayed on. And I, in effect, became a classicist after the fact. But what really gets me going, dead languages generally. So certainly Latin and ancient Greek, but also, oh, well, I could give you a whole list of languages that I have studied, taught, and uh, written about. So that's really what gets me going. How many of them can you read, more or less? (sighs) This is a very difficult question. Um, Linguists don't like being put on the spot there because the question, and this now sounds very academic, but is true, is where do you draw the line? So if, for example, I know Old High German, which I do, and I know Middle High German, which I do, um, you know, you really want to call those separate languages? Well, yes, in some sense, and no, in some other sense. If you know one, quote, dialect of a language and you know another dialect of a language, who knows? But I don't think it would be unreasonable to say that the number is in the many dozens.
0: I guess that's sort of like saying, do you speak Two languages. You speak both Hochdeutsch and Deutsch, right? Hochdeutsch is like with the Swiss-German. No,
1: the Swiss, well, the, well, I mean, the Austrian dialect is, or dialects of the Austrian dialects. Swiss-German is completely incomprehensible to native speakers of Hochdeutsch. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up, in fact, with uh, both uh, Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch. Um, my mother's family was entirely Plattdeutsch-speaking, that is to say, low-German-speaking. So um, I have a certain appreciation for the variation in so-called German dialects today, and that variation is very great indeed. So you would say those are different languages? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think I, I think by any normal criteria, those now count as different languages. Um, okay. But reasonable people can disagree on where the sure. lines are. No, that's
0: fine. Yeah, no, I, I just... Um... I'm just trying to think of a, of an analogy for people today where it would be ambiguous. I mean, Czech and Slovak, right? They're trying to make sure. Slovak a, a different language really hard. Um, but for uh, 100 years or so, it would be looked at funny if you tried to claim there were anything other than the sort of like the difference between Northern English and Southern English. Sure. Or Asian take,
1: or take Serbian and Croatian, for example, which right, are nearly right. identical, but have different writing systems. So that, that then presents uh, yet another problem. I mean, there was a, a case not that many years ago when I had a student who was a native speaker of English at Princeton who was from New Zealand and his accent was so heavy that it took me a couple of months to figure out what he was saying at all. And I'm not exaggerating. I I really, he would say things in class and I might get 20% of what he was saying. So it's funny. Um, uh, I, my father and I, one summer, like between
0: freshman and sophomore year of college, I was home and we decided to take a Italian for beginners class at NYU together, just as a father son thing. And uh, The professor goes around and he says, "Okay, who here has any Italian? Like, grew up with it or anything?" He's just trying to gauge whether some people didn't belong in the class. And about ten people raise their hands. And he goes around and he talks to them in Italian for a, a second just to get a sense of how good it is. And then he gets to this one woman, and his mouth just drops, and he almost turns gray. And he says, "Excuse me, ma'am, I, I just have to ask you, where where are your parents from?" And she says well, we're actually from an Italian community in Brazil. And he says, oh, okay. I don't mean to offend you, but you should know what you just spoke to me would be considered some of the most profane and vulgar <laughs> language <laughs> by a proper Italian family. Um, and she had no idea because was just, she just grew up speaking, you know, some gutter Italian. I don't know. He made it sound like it was just truly disgusting, but I always thought it was fascinating. I guess the question is, so you is, see, language is
1: uh, wonderful. All of these are good no, stories for stuff. why
0: language is great, and of course, you know that. But so when you're when you're studying this stuff, like how much, like what is the is there a term of art for language creep about like, or is, are there formulas for figuring out like you know, distance plus time equals this much screwing up of the grammar? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it seems to me like this would be a huge problem because you're first of all the. So much of the past is not illuminated by text, so you have to, there's a lot of guesswork,
1: right? That's right. Well, you're, I think you're asking a fairly technical question about how one determines time differences, say in the absence of archaeological or epigraphic evidence. Uh, this, is, this is very tricky because all languages change all the time, but they don't all change at the same rate all the time. There are... Don't really think this is worth getting into, though we could. There have been some attempts to figure out statistical means to determine things like time depth in the absence of non-linguistic evidence, but they don't seem to be terribly good. I have so many language questions. Uh but uh, Well, we're colleagues
0: now, so you can have me on as often as you want. Yeah, no, I may I may I maybe want to do that. Are you general I, I know politically you're sort of fairly, I, I shouldn't say that. I know this. <laughs> I surmise that politically you're somewhat simpatico with John McWhorter. I am very simpatico with, uh, with John McWhorter. Indeed. Are you linguistically, are you as, as, as a fellow linguist, do you guys get into fights when you at, like at a cocktail party at Manhattan Institute? Do you just start screaming about the Kurgan hypothesis at each other or where, where do you come down on
1: that? I would say that I know more about the, uh, uh, Kurgan or Kurgan hypothesis than he does. And he knows a whole lot more than I do about a whole number of things. I, I have tremendous admiration for him because he, before essentially anybody else moved from being a fairly conventional sort of linguist, uh, in an area in which I know very, very little, namely, uh, pigeons and creoles. Uh, And he moved from that to being the best public intellectual on language in the English speaking world. Um, And he did this long before anybody else did. So he writes so much and he writes about so many different things that of course, I'm going to agree with some and disagree a little bit with some others, but he is absolutely a, a model. If I could, if I could be more like him in my new incarnation, that would be fantastic. Okay. So long time listeners of this podcast
0: know that I'm, I'm baiting you into a trap here. Good. Where do you come down on the question of literally, should it stay in, a, in, a, should it have the meaning of actually meaning literal as in what is on the page, the technical definition of something, or should we allow these miscreants and hippies to use literally to mean figuratively? Um, and you will be, des- you will be graded on your answer. I will
1: be graded on my answer. Well, Uh, you and I know very well that people throw the word literally around all the time and that often it sounds to us, and I'm going to put us in the same camp here, very, very silly indeed. Most of the time, I think it's fair to say people can tell which use of literally it actually is, so that it's not actually a matter of impeding understanding. It's just a matter that, well, you and I think that the person we're talking to sounds a bit dumb. My guess, however, is that those people think that some of the things that we say and some of the words that we alter standard meanings of, as words do change in time, that they're going to think that what we say sounds a little bit dumb. So I'm going to take a kind of of middle-of-the-road position here. It is true that I really don't like the figurative use of literally. And can you find any cases in which I have actually publicly used it in a way that you would deplore? Well, you know, probably it has happened, but I don't think I do it very often, and I'm glad about that. But hey, this is just one example among so many. And I am always giving, I mean, one of my, one of my uh, problems or benefits, depending on your point of view, and I think something like this can be said of John McWhorter also, is that I'm actually a fairly middle-of-the-road kind of guy. I'm a fairly wishy-washy guy. Uh, I hope in various ways to become less wishy-washy, especially on big public issues. That's not literally, but I mean, say, I don't think literally is a big public issue, but on big public issues, I hope to have firmer and more informed opinions on various things in the years ahead. But in general, I've made my life into a kind of consensus-building middle ground uh, move uh, that may not have served me very well, but I tend to give I tend to give centrist sorts of answers to questions like that.
0: I, I, I'm with you, and I take your meaning. I, th- I think we can therefore I we can therefore agree to at least some extent that when say Joe Biden in the past says something like this is literally the most important moment in American history, and I don't, and he says I'm not exaggerating. I don't mean figuratively. That we can then take him to be, you know, like he he once told, I I I've followed this of Biden for a long time. He once told an audience in Africa that he goes, you are literally the keystone to Africa. Yes.
1: Whatever that means. And then
0: he goes on to Right. And then but then he goes on to say, I and I mean literally. I don't mean the, you know, I'm not exaggerating. And it's like, if you're going to say that you actually literally mean something, like and that you're going to be acknowledge the difference between literal and figurative, and then you double down on saying that you're being literal. I still get to make
1: fun of it. Of course it. you get to make uh, but, fun of it. But, but what literally has become here is, a, is an emphasizer more than anything else. Again, I'm not defending it. I agree that when the president says things like this, and of course says them repeatedly about all sorts of things, then it sounds silly. Um, but... Guess what? That's how language works. I mean, in the academic world, I have I have colleagues who send letters of recommendation every single year that start with the sentence "X is the best student that I've ever taught." Um, we all know who these colleagues are. We all read these letters all the time. These letters are always essentially identical, and they always use uh, essentially identical hyperbolic language. Uh, so, what do you do about that? It's a slightly different problem, but it's a problem that I'm very used to, or used to be in my old position. So I get the. I, I get
0: the fact that language changes. I'm a big believer in the changing nature of language. I always thought, although I have a little more sympathy for it these days than I used to, was it the, the uh, cole française, which would like change English language words that migrated into French. The, the Académie française, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And like, I always thought that was sort of silly. On the other hand, I kind of, as a conservative, I kind of get like, you want to hold on to the French language. And if if you can get away with it, more power to you is sort of my, my, my view these days. And so like, you know, if you look up the etymology of the word, what is it like cheat? You know, cheaters used to be, I think they were the, they were the tax collectors who were actually going around trying to prevent people from cheating on their taxes and then things evolve or whatever. I get all of that. My part of my problem is, is that there are some word and this is why I focus on the literally thing is that, you know, I'll, I, I, I've given up on decimate, I've given up on a bunch <laughs> of these things, but on words like literally, if we didn't have literally, we would literally need a word to do what literally does, right? right? I mean, if I tell you, uh, you know, if we're arguing about what the law says and I say, well, the literal text says X, that needs to convey this idea that there's a plain spoken, like plain meaning, you know, that fits the actual definitions of words, a word that conveys that is important, and if we lose the word literal to mean just something that we really emphasize, we're going to have to come up with another word. I mean, truth will do it a little bit, but like, it sh- we need less ambiguity about,
1: what, about the work that a word like literally does. Absolutely, but uh, let's, take, let's take something you just said. Suppose I now said, Jonah literally said X. So now I'm using the word literally, but I'm also speaking about speech. But the word literally is now used just as much, I believe, and I don't think you would dispute this, of speech as of written documents, although the underlying sure. word in literally is something that means an alphabetic letter.
0: Fair, fair. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, so on the linguistics front, so you, got into, you got into classics from a weird
1: root. Very weird. And as
0: someone who... It was really bad in the classics, I have to admit, um, always have been, I feel guilty about it, and who learned a lot about some of these, a lot about these issues by osmosis from being surrounded by Straussians and various people in the American Enterprise Institute orbit and in the National Review orbit. I'm kind of curious where you come down on some of this stuff. Like one of the arguments that, that Leo Strauss made is that particularly pre-modern thinkers, you were always in danger of Ending up like Socrates, right? And um, uh, and so you have to read the text extremely closely because for one, the, the public meaning, the public facing meaning, the the literal meaning is for one audience. But most philosophers are actually engaging in this conversation over time with other philosophers, and so it's it's buried and embedded in the text. Just to sort of, broadly speaking, like where do you come down on those issues? Do you, how true do you think they are? How much emphasis do you think you should put into it? Um, You know,
1: is it something that you think is underappreciated
0: or overappreciated, you know, in egghead circles?
1: Well, that's a big question. Let me, let me run with this a few directions. And if you don't like that, we'll, we'll come back to it. The first thing to say is that I am not a philosopher. Um, And I'm actually very, very uncomfortable talking about philosophical matters. Uh, I'm not at all proud of this. It's not that I am ignorant of Plato and Socrates and that sort of thing. But there are specialties in classics and in ancient cultures. um, And one of the ones that I am not is a philosopher. So I just have to preface with that. Um, The uh, second thing to say is that a word that hasn't come up so far is philology. And philology is a word that is, I suppose, very closely connected to a word like literally. And I am probably, above all else, a philological linguist. I'm somebody who cares very, very much about texts. Uh, Text also is a word that, in the first place, has an awful lot to do with the written word. I mean, it literally means woven stuff, um, but it's more often used of things that are written down than of speech. Um, And I'm very, very interested in strings of words, paragraphs, texts, webs of language, and in particular, webs of language that are written down. So the idea that one should read very closely what is there and argue with other people, knowledgeable and otherwise, about what those words and strings of words and strings of text mean, I think is extremely important. Uh, The third thing that I'll just say, since you mentioned Socrates, is that there is a very strange, in my view, Uh, Debate going on in the field of classics right now about the status of Socrates. Most people are taught, certainly I was taught, and I have no reason uh, in general to doubt this, that Socrates is one of the great figures of what we might call Western civilization. But some classicists in recent years have decided. That Socrates deserves to, uh, that Socrates deserved to die, and this is a matter of some interest to me at the moment. If I can bridge some topics that we're <laughs> likely to talk about, I think you know what's coming. Yeah, I, up.
0: I feel a good segue coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't have to go down that
1: segue, <laughs> but um, but uh, uh, the the press from the socialists to the Trumpies have been very very kind to me with. Almost no exceptions, but one of the exceptions is a piece that appeared, well, I may as well say it, in Inside Higher Ed not too long ago by a former graduate student at Princeton in which she compared me to Socrates, said that Socrates deserved to die, and implied, therefore, that I, too, deserve to die. An interesting position to be in. I'm not sure you wanted um, any of those directions. I just took that question in, but there it no, is. No, I liked all of them. Um, let's stay on the Socrates one because I, one of the
0: things I find... So, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, it's got problems. It's a critique, uh, as you, as, as you fancy-pants people might say, but uh, is uh, uh, Julian Benda's uh, Treason of the Clerics or Treason of the Intellectuals in English. Yes. And one of his points, it, writing about an era that I think has lamentably a lot of similarities with our own one of his points was that in the 1920s, you know, was sort of around when he's writing, um, this is, he says, this is the first era in the West, um, where the intellectuals side with the mob against Socrates rather than with Socrates. That's right. And he, and he talks about it in terms of the organization of political hatreds, where the, 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 the inconvenient individual who speaks out against the group is, um, um, the enemy Um, Because the sort of it's not a Rousseauian point, but like the general will group is is all that really matters. Um, So I guess that's a good place to sort of say. Well, first of all, in the classics, like how is how is that argument being received? Is it like this idea that Socrates, you know, had it coming? um, That seems like such a reversal of canon, even even for left wing professors. Yes,
1: I I wouldn't know because I have been so thoroughly removed from the classics world that. Uh, aside from uh, looking now and again at the hateful classics Twitter, which I try not to do, but other people do for me, aside from this, I have essentially no contact with, uh, uh, with American classicists. I mean, the number of them who still speak to me, I mean, even minimally, is extremely small. So I couldn't tell you what's going on really right now. I'm sad to say. All
0: right. So, I mean, now people who are not familiar with this whole thing or like, what is he, what do these guys keep referring to? So I guess we should refer to it. Um, Why don't you in your own terms and the time you think appropriate, uh, just sort of explain why you, a tenured professor um, at Princeton are no longer a tenured professor at Princeton and are instead, uh, you know, AI's benefit.
1: So this is a very hard question to answer quickly and simply, and I wish you hadn't put it quite like that, but let me try. (laughs) There are, there are broadly speaking, two schools of thought of what has happened. Um, The one school of thought, which is promulgated by Princeton University and frankly, very few others, is that I was stripped of tenure and fired after nearly a quarter of a century of frankly, very successful service to the university as a result of a consensual relationship that I had with a student now a very, very long time ago. A relationship... A graduate student. In fact, an undergraduate student. Oh, okay. Uh, a, an undergraduate student, a senior, uh, well of age and all of that. I didn't break laws or anything. I, At the time, Princeton, in fact, allowed there to be relations between professors and undergraduates, but not when the professor was in a supervisory or pedagogical capacity, which was the case in this instance. So in any case, the the Princeton line is that uh, long ago I had uh, an uh, unwise and I freely admit very problematic um, and sinful relationship with a student. this relationship was then brought to the attention of the university by a third party over 10 years later. Uh, I was hauled in, I immediately confessed, I was suspended for a year, and that should have been it. But then, according to the university, a couple of years after that, new information came to light about this. And so I was, in effect, tried all over again, and this time uh, they decided to get rid of me. That's line number one. Line number two, which is taken by essentially everybody other than the university and a very few other people. And the down with Socrates woman. And the down with Socrates woman, is that <laughs> is that in between my suspension and my being fired, I wrote a piece in the online journal Quillette, published on July 8th, 2020, called The Declaration of Independence, this is a piece every who's, every one of whose syllables I stand by to this day. Um, it was a piece against a an absurd laundry list petition signed by over 300 of my colleagues about so-called anti-racist initiatives at Princeton. Um, I thought some of the ideas were really good. I thought some of the ideas were up for debate. Uh, and some of the ideas are flatly illegal and others are in my view immoral and i either did the very right thing or the very wrong thing of saying so and that led to a long chain of events that led to the university condemning me then the university reinvestigating me and ultimately the university firing me that was a very long set of answers it's no, no, super no, no, no. complicated
0: and, and i look and i appreciate the honesty of it i thought it was very good uh... When I was following all of this, because I have friends who for, are for, sort of part of the extended Princeton
1: cinematic universe, as it were,
0: and Sorry Robert Dore was very.
1: Oh, oh that, that <laughs> is okay. Uh, but if, if if by Robert Dore, you, if if you're referring to Robert Dore, that's of course just fine.
0: Yes, very yeah, happy yeah, about no, that. So Robert Doerr, the pre, the president of AI, was very upset about what was going on with you, and um, and what it kind of reminded me of was I don't know if you ever watched The Wire. Of but, course, I watched all The Wire. Yeah, so like you know. The chief of police, Burrell, um, you know, he explains that he's not really good at strategy. He's not really good at tactics. He's not really good at, at the job, except for knowing what mayors want, as he puts it. And he knows the regs and the regulations in a way that if you need to fire somebody, he's the guy you go to to figure it out. <laughs> and um, that's how it sort of felt to me. It was like this whole sort of we have this troublesome priest. Uh, let's figure out, uh, let's go to the red tape and figure out a pretext for doing, for punishing X by citing Y. And a, a very, and a, you know, I, so I have a very sort of Arthur Kessler kind of
1: feel to it. Um, but there is light after darkness, AEI, for example. So it's not entirely indeed. a Kessler, a Kessler moment. I, I guess the question here is,
0: is... What is your theory of the case about why, you know, as, as my friend Charlie Cook likes to point out, um, of all the institutions in America that are supposed to be the most liberal in the classical sense of the word, um, universities and newspapers, uh, universities and newspapers are increasingly, and particularly universities, among the most illiberal. Absolutely. Um, what is your th-
1: what is your theory of the case about why that is about Princeton in general, or our cultural institutions? Broadly speaking, yeah, I mean,
0: you you can do Princeton as Exhibit A, or more broadly, I mean, you've written a lot about these issues more broadly. So, I mean, I just like let me put it this way: Are the problems at Princeton emblematic of the, the the societal trends, or the institutional trends trends generally, or are they,
1: or is there something sui generis about the Princeton story, other than the fact that it's centered on you? Oh, but it, you see, it hasn't entirely centered on me. That, that's what—that's what actually makes Princeton so interesting. So let me take both of those. First of all, what happens at Princeton and Harvard and Yale and places like that is what then happens in the rest of the country, at least as far as academia, and then secondarily, other cultural institutions are concerned. Um, people, for better or for worse. I used to think for better, and I now think largely for worse. Pay attention to places like Princeton. So, if something happens at Princeton, it has reverberations in a way that it doesn't if the same sort of thing happens at, and now choose some place that is not considered for better or for worse an elite institution. Princeton, I think, is a very interesting case. And I'm not saying that just because I know so much about it and because I'm implicated in this. Princeton is a very interesting case because it was, for so long, considered the most conservative of the Ivies. And I think rightly so. I mean, that is to say, I think the designation was correct. And Princeton, as recently as 2015, was the first institution in the country to adopt the University of Chicago principles of freedom of expression. That is to say, the University of Chicago adopted them. And then Princeton was next in line to do so and did so, in fact, by vote of the faculty, which is a a really remarkable thing. And then these rules of freedom of expression became enshrined and still sit there in the rules and regulations of the university. So even just a very few years ago, uh, Princeton was, depending on your point of view, either a slightly conservative or, as I would rather put it, classically liberal sort of place. But now, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, virtually every week, there is some peace in in uh, in the press about some new bit of craziness at Princeton, whether it has to do with me or whether it has to do with a professor accused of plagiarism or whether it has to do with freshman orientation or whether it has to do with exhibitions of condom art or whether it has to do with uh, the canceling of an exhibition of Jewish sculptors at the library, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on and on and on. Oh, and I didn't even mention one of the big ones from last year, namely the fact that the Department of Classics of which I was a member at the time, uh, voted and then the university followed suit to stop requiring even a single semester of either Latin or ancient Greek for an undergraduate to graduate with a degree in classics. That is completely insane. So we're now certifying people in effectively Latin and ancient Greek who have never had so much as one day of either Latin or ancient Greek. That, 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 all of this is happening at Princeton. So Princeton has gone from being a, a really, I think, very sensible institution to being a cauldron of insanity in just a very few years. I get grief from my listeners sometimes when I don't push back on certain sure, things. Sure, push back. And so I,
0: I, no, 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 no. I just want to be very clear. I do not think condom art
1: is a thing. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned condom art. So, faculty and students and staff were encouraged, by the way, to work together in groups. I mean, I just just imagine this: um, taking expired condoms and turning them into art. Now, look, there are lots of things that I am willing to say in a fairly libertarian sort of way should be allowed. But this seems highly, highly unwise. Let me stress again a member of the faculty could have gotten together with a couple of undergraduates to create this used condom art. I, 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 I mean, if that doesn't count as unwise, I don't know what is. But people like me get condemned, but things like that are in fact celebrated. That's not good. I just, I just meant that, like,
0: you know, it's like when Friedrich Heyer talks about the concept of social justice not being a, a thing. He says, as all the meaning is, is the phrase, a moral stone. I just think condoms are condoms, and art is art, and... Never uh, the twin. Don't cross the streams, yeah. Um, again, you know, there's this, I think it was Roger Scruton who said, everything that we're expert on, we tend to be conservative about. Is what happened at Princeton, do you have a generalizable theory of... Because, I mean, I, I take your point that as Princeton goes, so goes a lot of other places. I think that is generally true. Um, It's very very similar or analogous to the old arguments about, you know, pre-internet about liberal media bias, which was that you basically had three magazines and two newspapers that basically set the tone for the entire country, which had lots of newspapers and lots of, you know, other media outlets. But, you know, if the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC, NBC and CBS were all subscribers to groupthink, it trickled down. All over the place, um, and so I, I, I agree with you about the the elite trickle down thing, but what is your theory of the case about why Princeton succumbed to these general trends is it Is it unique to princeton or or is it that it just it was overdue? It was one of the last rocks in the river,
1: and the river just eventually had to push it along along with all everything else maybe i 'll try to give two answers to that. Uh, the one is that princeton And classics generally were more conservative than some other peer institutions and some other, let's call them peer departments. And so there's something to the idea that they were the last rocks in the river to roll. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I'll say, but I want to be very careful about this, is that I believe that there are specific people associated with Princeton who are heavily responsible for what is going on. But it seems to me unwise on a podcast for me to start naming them and going through what I view as their sins. Those people who are paying attention are, I think, not going to have too much difficulty figuring out who some of these people might be, both administrators and members of the faculty uh, and staff. But maybe I should leave it at that. In any case, the point is that there are two ways of looking at it. The one is They're the last places to go. And last places to go then often go hard, which seems to be what's happening here. And then there are some specific people who I think are pushing this along. So broadening out,
0: uh, what's his name? Um, The president of France, uh, Macron. So Macron recently, not too long ago, gave a speech saying there are these horrible, no good, very bad ideas coming from America about wokeism and whatnot, and they're screwing the world of French uh, education and intelligentsia and academics and, and whatnot. And part of me wants to say, serves
1: you right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? no, I because, mean, that's, a, you know. that's, a, that's not a bad response since, as of course, you know, in some fields, uh, the French seriously infected uh, American academia. At, uh, yeah, uh, Foucault,
0: Derrida, Sartre, yeah. you know, these guys came in and they messed us up. And now, you know, turnabout is sort of fair play. I guess the question I have is, is, is Jonathan Haidt, I, who, again, is someone I think is sort of Sort of on your wavelength on a lot of these things. He makes an argument that I am very sympathetic to, that listeners of this podcast know well, that the difference between now and previous eras is not that the ideas are necessarily so much worse, is that the market is so much more receptive. Correct. and, And this is a very difficult thing for me to concede because I've I love intellectual history. I mean, I just love that stuff I like blaming, I you know, bad things on weird ideas that escaped some lab long ago and came over here. Um, but I think this the sort of the the, the 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 fragility argument, the 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 zero tolerance for bu- for bullying, the extreme safetyism. We had political correctness thirty years ago. We're about the same of age, course. you know. And there were all sorts of dumb ideas that I had to you know learn about and subject myself to and find arguments against. What's different now is that it seems to me that the, those, those general ideas are psychologically incredibly compelling for young people in ways that they didn't used to be. I mean, where do you come
1: down on all that? Right. Well, a lot of things to say. So one thing, uh, right, you and I were both born in 1969, right? Uh, so when we were seniors in high school, the closing of the American mind came out, uh, when we were juniors in college, I think, uh, um, uh, we had Camille Paglia and we had Roger Kimball. Uh, this was a time in which people were writing really interesting stuff about what was going on. And, and there were, there were real debates about these things also in the classics. Martin Bernal was also, uh, in those years. Those were really interesting years. Uh, People cared passionately on both sides, or all sides, one might say, of these issues, um, and they could get pretty heated. But if your experience was anything like mine, your friends and colleagues and professors were receptive to having these conversations and these arguments, however heated they might get. Uh, And there was no idea that I don't know, you had to be protected from these ideas, safetyism, and this sort of thing. You you, you just didn't at all. So where are we now? Uh, second point, um, how did you put it before? Oh, you had a really good phrase, and now I've lost it. I've completely forgotten the words that came out of my mouth. <laughs> the market is oh, right, receptive to it. Right, right, right. right. You, had a, you had an even better phrase later on than that. But But let's take that point. Universities, colleges, universities were incubators of ideas, but kids played around. Teenagers played around. You played around with wacky stuff and maybe you wrote some wacky papers with some wacky theories. And it was fun and games and it could be intellectually interesting to take weird ideas and see what you could do with them. Um, So they were incubators, but the babies didn't go anywhere. These days, thanks to at least in some fields, a very few people who got out some decades ago. Now these ideas are becoming mainstream and are being amplified. And the idea actually is you incubate these babies and then these babies go out into the wider workforce. Um, That didn't happen then, and it's now happening all the time. It's not that the ideas are worse, necessarily. It's It's that ideas that are debatable, and one can absolutely say this on all sides of uh, both ends of a political spectrum or all sides of a political ball, uh, ideas that are unquestionably debatable are now taken as gospel truth. And if you don't intone the gospel truth, then you're not going to get a job where you're not going to get the right sort of job. um, And then you're going to land in this job. And of course, it's going to be your lot to continue to intone these truths and to pass them on to the next people as well. That's really bad. And it's really bad regardless of content. I think it's just as bad if I agree with the content, It's just not what these things are supposed to be doing.
0: I have this theory about the discrimination or the, 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 the the disproportionate or disparate treatment of Asian Americans in in elite schools. And, you know, you had these quotes from guys at MIT and someplace else, maybe it was Princeton, I can't remember, you know, where the explanations for why Asian Americans were being, uh, I would argue, just to put it bluntly, discriminated against, um, if you go by their qualifications on paper, um, was that they weren't well-rounded. This was sort of a code, right? And you could totally see um, I bet you I could find, it would t- probably take me an hour to find very similar quotes from, you know, the deans of Harvard or Princeton 100 years ago about Jews not being Jews. well oh, absolutely. It, right?
1: Absolutely. And, um, I mean, just read The Chosen. for I mean, re- Exactly. Taribles. The Chosen is, is the best book on that subject. And um,
0: my theory about this is that very much like Jews 100 years ago, the, these Asian kids, uh, speaking with a very broad, and very broad brushstrokes, tend to be either first generation or close to it, Americans and their parents. This is something that, that a lot of people don't appreciate about why Jews and other ethnic minorities that emphasize education, emphasize education. It is not so their kids will get rich. It is a hedge against them being poor. Right. And so like, you know, Jewish parents from time immemorial become a lawyer, become a doctor because you may not get rich, but you know, you'll be able to provide for your family and you won't be poor. And, um and so the, a lot of these asian families they want their kids to become engineers they want their kids to become doctors and lawyers have real professions that will have predictable foreseeable returns on investment for them and their families and and then so and that means almost by definition they do not come from the ranks of the the sort of new class elite who are basically manipulators of words and images and concepts and don't need to actually master hard sciences or stem or any of that kind of stuff and the problem for them is is that they don't know the shibboleths, right they when they do their interviews or they write their essays they don't know how to talk about the summer they spent on their parents dime working volunteering in the third world someplace or or um you know, uh, counseling inner-city Latin, Latinx girls about how to get abortions, right? They don't know how to talk about social justice, and that is the screen that keeps them out because they actually want from education what education is supposed to traditionally provide.
1: You presumably saw the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning, I think. On no, it didn't, actually, The absurdity but... of college essays. It's, in fact, about exactly this sort oh, of Oh, is thing. it really? I, yeah, I, it's it worth assumes, looking at. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's worth reading. Uh, well, I, I, I I am not a lawyer, but I have, of course, spent a lot of time. I spend a lot of time reading about the Harvard and UNC cases and the impending Supreme Court case. Um, Princeton and a whole number of universities yesterday, I believe, uh, submitted, uh, a brief, uh, saying that, uh, of course, effectively affirmative action should continue in one form or another. Uh, I don't think it will surprise anybody who's listening to this that I agree with everything that you just said. Uh, I am traditionally a centrist or slightly maybe traditionally left of center kind of guy who has always had a few positions that are center or center, right. And one of them that has never changed is that uh, I think affirmative action these days is a very bad thing. Um, of course there are, of course that's a very simple statement and it's much, much more complicated than that, but I don't think anybody listening to this will be surprised uh, to hear me say that I hope that, uh, that uh, Edward Bloom and his people win at the Supreme Court. Uh, As for um, Jews and Asians, I'll just add one other uh, recent thing, and that is that the latest issue of the Jewish journal Sapir, which just dropped or is in the middle of dropping right now every day, they release another article or two, is on education. And there are three pieces on merit and meritocracy that were just published, one of them by the editor of Sapir, Brett Stevens, and I recommend that piece very, very highly. Just came out.
0: And we should, hearkening back to our, our, our literal conversation, um, affirmative action, as originally proposed, is perfectly fine as far as I Of concerned, course. Right, you know, it's like it means going out of your way to make sure that you're being inclusive and that people aren't frozen out of the application process and all that, but there's a difference between going out of your way in terms of outreach and actually changing standards, changing the rules or worse having different rules for different people, you know, which is, you can actually make a case often you need to change rules. Um, But then whatever you change the rules to, they need to be the rules, not rules for this group, but not for that group. And I I think that that's where people get themselves kind of lost in all of this. Getting back to the classics just for two, our linguistics actually for two seconds. What, Prior to your uh, departure from these arguments, what, um, like what are the, the defining big picture arguments in like the world of linguistics? It's been a while since I did any reading on this. I always remember thinking like, how surprising it was that Noam Chomsky on the thing going sort of back to that Roger Scruton point about being conservative on the things you actually know about that noam chomsky who you know was fairly maoist on a lot of political issues was kind of conservative on the issue of linguistics because he actually believed that we were born with certain innate capacities you know an internal grammar i can't remember what all that stuff was does that argument still exist are there similar arguments these days that divide um, linguistics types, the way that you know philosophers
1: used to be divided between hermeneuticists and whatever there are, there are many ways of chopping up the world of linguistics. Um, one of the ways is to chop it up between people who are primarily interested in I'm now going to use a fancy term synchrony, and those who are interested in diachrony. Uh, so diachronic linguists, people who are interested in diachrony, and I'm one of them are people who are interested in things through time, chronic. Um, So they're interested in the history of language. Most linguists in uh, the world today are not diachronic linguists, but are synchronic linguists, syn with chron time. So they're interested in how a language operates at any given point in time, often the present. Um, The sorts of debates that you were just mentioning about Chomsky are fundamentally synchronic rather than diachronic questions. These two can't be entirely separated. What's true now um, will have been true in the past. How the past uh, operated will, in some sense, have uh, implications for the present, but the sorts of things that I know best are very far removed from the issues you just mentioned. On the other hand, I had a good linguistic education and am generally interested in language questions, including synchronic ones so here i 'll simply say this: that when I was young, when we were young, uh, chomsky was was a, a rising and major force in linguistics, and it was very unusual to find people who didn't more or less, I mean, there were so-called linguistic wars about the less, but more or less agree with at least many of the things that he had to say about syntax, that is to say how words are put together into clauses and sentences, phrases, clauses, and sentences. Um, These days, that is much less true. So uh, Chomsky's stock, I think wrongly, uh, uh, has, has fallen really quite considerably. And that's very interesting to watch. But quite honestly, most of those debates are ones that even when I was a full-time linguist, I was watching more or less from the sidelines because I was more interested and am more interested in history.
0: So uh, on the history front, so like I'm, I'm, I'm almost
1: done with Adrian
0: Goldworthy's biography of Caesar. Um, and... Which I have not read. Uh, that's fine. Um, I actually a former colleague mine at AI actually had goldworthy to AI and we had dinner once and it was interesting and um um i'm, I'm just panicking a little bit that maybe it wasn't him but we'll <laughs> figure it out <laughs> um, but uh anyway the the thing i i'm so and this is and this i will concede is is slightly outside of your Ballywick but you're going to have better insight into it than i am like um i talk about this with my daughter all the time um listening to the I, I've been driving a lot, so I listen I've been listening to it on Audu- on Audible. The things that we claim to know, like I read Barry Strauss's History of Spartacus, right? And they're always good. The good guys are always good, the good scholars are always good at saying, this is our best guess about this, this is our best guess about that. But like, um, how much stock do you actually put in how much we claim to actually know about these guys? Cause so much of it seems to be a lot of admittedly careful and judicious and scholarly extrapolation from text. But um, it seems that like we're just missing a lot of information to have these, these allegedly clear pictures of Cicero's motivation for giving this
1: speech or whatever. I, it, it's, it's hard to deny that that's true. And one of, the, one of the things that uh, I guess I used to be known for in my classical and linguistic work, and most people did not think this was a good thing, is that I'm a kind of micro guy. It's not that I'm not interested in big picture questions. I'm absolutely interested in big picture questions, but I'm a very bottom up kind of guy. This gets back again to things like philology and an interest in, say, the details of verb forms, the sorts of things that most people don't find all that exciting rather than big philosophical ideas out there. Um, So I've always been very much a bottom-up kind of guy. And one of the reasons for that is just no doubt temperament in a way that I can't explain. But another is that I have often, or when I was young, often found it very difficult to distinguish between historical fiction and so-called historical fact. And that gets to the sort of thing that you were just talking about. So I'm not the sort of person who's going to be able to make a really good case now for how it is that we really, really, really understand Cicero's motivation for it. Something, um, but that's not the sort of thing that I would ever have been the sort of person who could push very, very hard. And for that reason, I greatly admire people who who try to do this. Some of whom do it extremely well. I mean, Barry Strauss does this extremely well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I wasn't criticizing anybody. I no, just, no. I, but but there there are people who really, really do this well. Um, I'm just definitely not one of those people.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very Sherlock Holmesy kind of you know rome csi kind of pursuit where we extrapolate all sorts of conclusions from stuff that you know you know that you wouldn't that the layman would be like how how do we know that because of this and then It's very interesting. I I find that stuff. I wish there were better, were more footnotes about that kind of stuff because I like the footnotes in some ways more
1: than. Well, unfortunately, I like the footnotes too, to a fault. I mean, this, if we can come full circle, is where things like literally become very interesting because one of the things that that uh, that people seem not to be very good at these days is distinguishing between things that are facts or near facts and things that seem very likely and things that seem sort of likely and things that seem conceivable but maybe aren't all that likely and things that are just get thrown out there but Maybe they really could be wrong, and things that are really highly unlikely but but hey, let's just try it on for size and the way you express those differences is by using little words, often adverbs literally and otherwise, um, to 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 set the scene between the things you really want your reader or listener to understand you believe and those things you want your reader or listener to think about but you're not placing all that much stock in them i wish very much that people would be more careful about distinguishing the 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 near fact from the likelihood of fiction so this is
0: another thing i talk with my daughter a lot about about and she speaks some of this language of the of the the fragility generation. Of course she does. It would be very odd. It would be very,
1: it would be very odd if she did not.
0: And, uh, but she'll often talk about how the burning of the library of Alexandria, uh, giving her anxiety. (laughs) And, um, um, uh, and when you start, when you start looking at the footnotes about the stuff that we don't have, that we knew existed, forget the, the Rumsfeldian unknown, unknown documents. That would be really cool. Um, of the stuff that you surmise that you have a high degree of confidence out there that does not exist or that you think that we've lost, um, what are some of the things that you wish some guy cleaning up his attic, some Dead Sea stroll- Scroll kind of situation where they un- undo this tomb and hey, look, all these scrolls? Like, what, what would, what would like, f- like, transform your workload in the old days? Because they finally found X, which
1: might settle this question or that question. Yes, well, I mean, I, I can't quantify this, but there, aside from the many things that we don't know about that have been lost, the amount of stuff we actually have is dwarfed by what we know we could have had and. Apparently do not if the fire marshal um, had to screw so, it up in egypt I- right. exactly and this sort of thing and, and, uh, and every once in a while some some new text emerges, and this is always really very exciting because it you know adds, uh, adds, adds, adds data. Um, my point here is that there's so much of this that everybody is going to give you a different answer mm-hmm. to it so what's my answer well I, I suppose that the classical material that I feel most attached to is ancient epic. That is to say, Homer uh, and somebody much less well-known, but shouldn't be much less known, uh, called Hesiod. And we have a great deal of, we have a great many fragments of early Greek epic poetry from which we can understand something more about the Background and, for one of a better word, postground of the stories in things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, but we have very few of these texts. Uh, even close to in full. You know, a line here, a few lines there. So I would like myself to see a lot more of that early so-called hexametric poetry in the so-called epic cycle. That is to say, material around the epics, the elite, and the odyssey. But that's a very personal answer. Other people will, of course, tell you uh, Aristotle. Other people will tell you uh, Euripides. Good answers too, etc.
0: Yeah, I mean, the I mean, we're missing a couple of books of Aristotle's, right? I mean... Oh, yes. Um, yes. Are there any, like, grand questions that, like, literally, if the equivalent of, you know, the DOD just deleted all their texts from January 6th, right? Is there, is there some document that, you know, the, if, the, if the Vikings hadn't set fire to this monastery or whatever, we would be able to settle this question that has caused, you know, faculty members to scream at each other that you can think of? Because I love that kind of stuff, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, I just think that kind of stuff is awesome and,
1: you know, be fun to find out. Yeah, this is a great question, and I'm going to flub this one entirely. Again, this is way beyond my competence, but the sorts of, of things that get most often discussed here are philosophical texts that may or may not be sitting in the so-called Villa dei Papiri. Uh, At Herculaneum, and which slowly, slowly, slowly um, come to light. Um, These the the texts there that people are especially interested in are 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 philosophical by people like Philodemus, Um, and again, this is well outside my area of competence. But those are the sorts of things that uh, people are yelling at each other about all the time. It's
0: like the was it Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose, was that? Aristotle had written something on humor that like blew up a whole bunch of doctrine. I like to imagine a whole bunch of my Straussian friends setting their hairs on fire to find out that Plato says in a letter, either he was deadly
1: serious in the Republic or Mm -hmm. he was completely kidding. Uh, Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, the the question, the question of platonic humor is, uh, is, is very much an open one. Yeah. Uh, some, people, some people think he's very funny and some people don't, and most people are probably somewhere in between, and it depends text to text. And yes, everybody should go back and read The Name of the Rose, which, uh, you know, was, uh, when did it come out, 81 or uh, something like that, was, was just, a, just a, a, a wonderful, I think just a wonderful book about philology, scholarship, madness, and all the rest. I I, I haven't, I I have, I reread it once, but I haven't reread this in decades. And you've just made me think, let's go back and read that. Do you hate the Dan Brown stuff? (laughs) No, actually, I I have a, I have a a great weakness for, uh, for trash. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's been a long time since I read a Dan Brown book, but I used to read Dan Brown books on, on airplanes. Um, uh, I I like reading stuff like that on airplanes. I'm not going to apologize for it. I have have a great
0: many dear Catholic friends who very upset about.
1: the. Oh, I, I, I have, uh, I have some very dear, uh, Catholic friends who are, uh, who are very unhappy about, um, the Da Vinci code, uh, the Da Vinci code, of course. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, and, and of course they're very, very, very unhappy about that. Um, they take some of the scenes in there personally, and I guess I can understand that. Um, but for better or for worse, I don't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. All right. Um, I do hope you'll come back because I have, uh, I have so many more layman questions for you about some of this stuff. I mean, again, happy to talk about, you know, the state of the universities and free speech and intellectual freedom and all that kind of thing. But like, um, I really like the
1: geeky stuff. I know you do. So do I happy to talk about that or anything else. look
0: forward to you, uh, you know, darkening the hallways of, of AI. What floor are you going to be on? Do you know? I
1: haven't been told yet. Don't know. But uh, I'll, I'll see you on the rooftop. For sure. For sure. All right. Uh, Josh Katz, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Jonah.
0: All right. So Professor Katz has uh, left the studio. I hope people are okay with the direction I took this thing. I I just find that stuff really, really interesting. And he and was a good sport to play along with my Philistine layman kind of questions. Um, and uh, I'm sure we will have all sorts of opportunities to revisit contemporary political issues at greater depth. Uh, but that's just, I, I just, I, I love the, I love philology. I love, you know, all that stuff. And, um, in a very, very, very amateurish kind of way. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on him to explain all sorts of cool stuff to me that, um, I don't know about, um, particularly because I like that German stuff. um, and, uh, thanks very much to Chris Starwalt and AB for, uh, pitching in this week for me. Um, I'm, I'm, my only complaint is that we were trying to figure out how I could get AB on to do it with me and now she doesn't with Starwalt and so like, you know, I gotta wait a, you know, acceptable period of time before she comes back on The Remnant. Um, I'll explain my weird travel stuff and all that another time, uh, just had stuff I had to deal with. And, uh... Hopefully, the next time you hear from me, I will be talking to you uh, from an undisclosed location in uh, Maine. Um, Very much looking forward to that. Very much looking forward to... I mean, I'll still be doing the the work I got to do, but um, very much looking forward to taking a little bit of a breather. Um, And uh, sign up if you haven't, and if you can afford it to the, the... the post-election conference in Naples. I think it's going to be a good time. There will be, um, uh, there will be libations and cigars and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to go play golf and do healthy things, we have people for that too. Um, and uh, uh, other than that, I got nothing else.
1: So I'll see you next time. Leider nicht. Das ist ein Podcast.